and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Brandon Valeriano, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Marine Corps University. Brandon, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I love seeing you. I, I know the audience cannot see you, but I, I miss you and I miss seeing you around the office, so it's good to, to have a visual. Back at you, pal. Um, we're going to talk about some cyber issues today, but first I kind of want to just kind of lay the groundwork and get, give people a sense of where you're coming from. Um, you've done a lot of uh, work on cyber uh, security in 2015 in particular. This is how I first heard of you. Uh, your book, Cyber War versus Cyber Reality, is published with uh, Ryan Maness. Um, we tried to look at this comprehensively and empirically. What did you and your co-author find in that book? Well, I think to start off, uh, I kind of frame this issue as the cyber origin story. And a lot of people in international security have jumped on cybersecurity. And I first jumped on around 2009 uh, when I went to the Naval War College and I went to a workshop and I thought cyber future of war, evolution of war, obvious. Um, and the problem is I felt a lot of people didn't really have any theoretical or empirical foundations for the claims they were making. So with my grad student, Ryan Maness, uh, we uh, set out to catalog empirically the cyber domain. And, oh God, that was a mess. Uh, we obviously expected to find a lot more than we did. And the reality is, is that there are not that many cyber incidents of consequence. And that's really confusing and confounding to people because they believe that my data is inaccurate because they think there should be more. The problem is we've gone through now two iterations, uh, four major updates, multiple collaborators. At this point, I don't even basically code the initial data. Uh, I, I code uh, or do the reviews to ensure it's accurate. Um, there's no bias in the data. The reality is, is that cyber cybersecurity is an inflated threat. So that led to the 2015 book, the Oxford book, one of, I guess, my significant contribution, which uh, outlines the field and demonstrates that restraint is a reality and that uh, quite often the fears are very much overblown. And then in 2018, with my co-author, uh, Ben Jensen, added to the team with Ryan Maness, we followed on and I think we made a, a more critical point. And that point is, is that cyber is not coercive, which means that it's not really useful on the battlefield or for diplomacy. Uh, and I have some ideas as to what cyber is useful for, but it's not useful for war. So that's where we are right now. And that's where we are under the context of the Russo-Ukrainian war. Try to explain this to me, because on the one hand, you're saying empirically, it's not clear it's not been demonstrated that cyber uh, security is a major problem and a, a tactic that lots of states will use very aggressively. And yet the kind of um, the expectation in a lot of the security literature and in DC is that this is going to be a, a weapon that's wielded often and could could be uh, major and influential. So you're finding, and then the kind of general discourse is, is very at odds. Yeah, and, and it's very confusing. And, uh, you know, this goes to the deeper issue of the media and the discourse. 
And who's saying what and who is making these claims? And I think a lot of people have made very unfounded claims about cybersecurity over time. And going back to Dron Acrilla and Ron Felt's early article on uh, cyber war, they more likely were thinking about this idea that they called net war, this kind of uh, extra systemic, non-state-based warfare. And I think that's what we've seen more. That's really the reality, is that cyber as a tool is more useful to enable information warfare. It's more useful to enable deception. But if you're Russia and you're thinking about attacking Ukraine and your goal is to shut off their communications, it's not very useful or effective to try and shut off their communications through a cyber attack. It's a lot easier to blow up a tower. And that's the challenge is that the reality doesn't meet with the grand projections of the future. And the other thing, of course, I blame is fictions. Um, every movie now, like, I, I need to do this at one point. I, I think I hate myself, but I want to go through all the Fast and the Furious movies and catalog how they use cyber in these movies. Because cyber is like now the the fifth member of the team. It's even in Ocean's Eleven. It's like, it's always the thing you need to make something work. But it's not at all clear that cyber makes anything work in warfare. And that's the problem. So let's get back to that question then of what states do use it for? Why, why, how is it useful or how could it be useful? Well, it could be useful for information operations. It could be useful for what they call hack and leak operations, that you hack into the opposition, you grab information, then you spill that information out. It could also be useful for disruption of command and control um, facilities that um, if you become too dependent on digital communication, then attacks from that zone can wipe out your ability to communicate. But, you know, in in the context of the Russia-Ukrainian war, which I I think is a very important case because it basically goes back to this idea. If your theory and your ideas cannot meet the emergent example of major power, not major power, but major warfare, uh, I don't know what good your theory is. And the Ukrainians early on started to wire their trenches for wired World War I-level communications. So as long as you're not dependent on these factors of communication, um, it's not really a useful attack vector. And in fact, the Russians even failed so remarkably at communications that they needed to piggyback on existing Ukrainian communications to make their communications work. So they were never even able to shut down Ukrainian communications because if they did, they would have shut down their own. And of course, we know all the stories about Russians stealing SIM cards and things like that. So the entire issue is an absolute mess that's dominated by this sort of mythological feature of how you think war should work. And that's cool in a movie. Um, Sadly, there's not very many good cybersecurity movies. I think War Games is still the best, but the reality doesn't meet uh, how these tools are used in operation. And that's a major story for security because I think it really dictates this course and these things that we talk about in, you know, think tank, uh, think tanks like Cato and Quincy and other about the misguided perceptions about the nature of warfare, threat inflation, and the nature of restraint. And I think that's what's really going on at the heart of this article and the heart of this issue, that cyber is but a symptom of a wider problem in the community. In a Cato paper a few years back, you wrote that attacks do not 
uh, beget attacks. Um, why do some people think that cyber is escalatory, and why do you think that it's not? I really don't know why people think cyber is escalatory. I guess it's just an assumption that if you hit someone, they're going to hit you back. But as we know from the history of international relations, um, it's actually like hit me once, hit me twice, hit me three times, then maybe I'll think about saying something. There is a remarkable ability for states to turn the other cheek outside of a intense rivalry. You know, you're not going to turn the other cheek if you're Ukraine and Russia. But um, one-off attacks do not really beget other escalating spirals. There is no escalation ladder in cyberspace. There's no process towards escalation because there's not even retaliation, as you say. Like, we're not even talking about escalation. For, the, for escalation to occur, there needs to be retaliation. That's just a definition, and that escalation should be a higher order of intensity from the initial attack. If there is no response to the initial attack, there cannot be escalation. So the fundamental process of escalation is entirely thrown off. And there have been a few people who have been working on this for a while. Uh, of course, me and my co-authors, but Erica Longgren and uh, Jackie Schneider and others have been very important for the discourse. But there are people out there, uh, particularly Lucas Kilo is coming out with a new book uh, on Yale University Press that advocates for retaliation in cyberspace. And it's like taking these ideas and putting them in the policy practice is very dangerous. And um, recently, Arthur Sperling said, the problem with political science is that policymakers don't take us seriously. And I would say the problem with cybersecurity is that policymakers take us too seriously. And we've gone really off the deep end in this discourse. Um, I think sometime in the Obama administration, the Defense Department declared that it would see cyber attacks, at least of a sufficient severity, uh, against the United States as an act of war. So how does that policy kind of play into this issue of, of um, cyber not being an escalatory tactic? Oh, sure. I mean, and this is the reality, right? If there was a massive attack where a lot of people died, that would be an act of war. That's fairly obvious. And, uh, you know, one of my foundational memories in this community is getting yelled at by John McCain, where he kept asking me, what is the red line in cyberspace? And I said, it's death. That's fairly obvious. The problem for people in the cybersecurity community is there's never even been a basic death. Um, recently, there was a court case in Germany about ransomware where a hospital was shut down. And the conjecture was that because someone was rerouted to a different hospital, that's why they died. So therefore, this is the first cyber death. But in the insurance case, it was claimed that um, that was a negligible issue on the death and the person was going to die anyways. And not being able to go to a certain hospital didn't really change things. We will have a cyber death. Um, I am particularly very, very concerned about our water systems and the vulnerability to our water systems, basically because they're not protected at all. But cyber as a tool of war, it hasn't happened yet. And this is an interesting question for us in this community. How do you view the future? How do you deal with the future? Do you guard against the spectacular? And most often people say, well, okay, I agree with everything you say, but if America goes to war with China, everything you say would be useless. And at that point, I say, obviously, because we might be in nuclear war at that point. So to take that conjecture that cyber is the future of warfare and that lots of people are going to die through cyber attacks, through this spectacular 
extension in fiction. That's not how you make policy. Um, it's particularly possibly a lesson of 9-11 that you need to think about failures of the imagination. But I think the first thing we need to do is to guard against the basics, to have the basic forms of defense. And a GAO report, I think it was 2016, said that every weapon system the United States had bought to that time is vulnerable to cyber attacks. So we're not even thinking about the basics. And to think about the contours of offense, defense, retaliation, escalation ladders is entirely misplaced because I think people don't really understand the domain enough to really provide policy advice. You know, that was going to be my next question. Um, I, I wonder how much you think the misunderstanding about cyber just comes from people not understanding the domain itself. It's a kind of new technology. A lot of policymakers are very old. I'm sure there are people within the bowels of government and the security state that know cyber very well. But um, the way policymakers talk about it, the way the commentariat talks about it, the way the public sees it, is this kind of new, opaque, scary technology. And technologies that are new, uh, there's a race for them. And so that's why people think they're, they're uh, particularly dangerous in the, set, in the context of international politics. Is, is it just ignorance of, of how the technology works or, or is it something else going on? I wouldn't blame this on ignorance. I don't think anyone's really ignorant in this space. I think really the problem is they're listening to the wrong people. And I've already already illustrated the problem with fiction and Fast and Furious and, you know, whatever, pick your recent movie that includes cybersecurity. My favorite, of course, is James Bond, where they blow, out, blow up uh, MI6 through a cyber attack, where my joke was, well, that's a plumbing problem. That's not a cyber problem. Uh, but I think the deeper issue here is the contours of the emerging cyber industrial complex. And what I mean by that is there is an entire landscape of capitalized companies that are making billions of dollars to provide cybersecurity protections. And that's all well and good, and that's important. But on the other hand, when, as a reporter, if the only person you talk to is someone who has an interest in selling their wares in this space and in inflating the problem so they can sell goods and sell services. That's a huge fundamental misconception about the nature of the domain. And you see that if you look at these articles about cybersecurity, if you look at who is quoted, it's often not academics like me. It's often people who have a stake in the game. It's often people who have invested. And I, I am a very stupid man. I should have invested in these companies back in 2010. I knew it. I thought about it. But uh, I think that would have been intellectually dishonest. But on the other hand, I probably would be in a villa in Italy if I, if I had done that. And um, that's the problem. A lot of people have bought villas. A lot of people have bought a lot of vacation homes on this idea. And they're polluting the discourse and they're making the policy advice abhorrent in many ways. Um, you've written a new paper and I want to get to that. But before we do, I want to take the invitation to go down this tangent that you you mentioned quickly, uh, why are our water systems vulnerable and what kind of cyber attack would that look like if it was targeted at our water systems? Oh, so yeah, I mean, this is a great question. They're vulnerable for two reasons. One, funding. Uh, we don't devote a lot of funding to water system control. And in fact, a lot of the funding that does go to water systems, of course, is for the bureaucracy of these systems employees, but also for climate change. You know, they need to buy these little balls that uh, deflect light so water doesn't evaporate, things like that. 
um, that's very expensive over time. Uh, and that does not leave a lot of money for cybersecurity protections. And then uh, at the same time, uh, we become a remote work society and we try to digitalize everything. But the problem is we can't digitalize uh, essential services like water and power because that means they're vulnerable from external attack. I think the basic, you know, is just it's literally what the Simpsons covered, what, 30 years ago when Homer uh, got really fat and tried to work from home from a nuclear power plant. And it's just, you can't do that. Like, it's too critical. You can't digitally wire these things because when you do do that, they become vulnerable. And, um, you know, there was a recent book written, but I think uh, Miko, um, he's a Finnish long name. I can't really pronounce it. But the basic idea is that anything digital, anything electronic can be hacked. And that's true, but there needs to be a central course of utility for that hack to work in war, to be a tool of war. Right now, it's a tool of chaos. Right now, it's a tool of hatred. Right now, it's a tool of monetary uh, embellishment if you're a criminal and a ransomware group. But it's not really useful as a tool of war. What would Russia get out of poisoning our water supply? Uh, it might be useful to demonstrate how inept maybe the American system is, but that's something that's true of the entire globe. And this is the interesting thing about cybersecurity is that while we do walk a tightrope and there are a lot of things that are very vulnerable, there is this thing, and John Acrilla has been talking about this recently, about mutually assured cyber destruction. Now, why would Russia attack our power supply and our water systems treatment plants when we can very well do the same thing immediately back to them? So this idea of deterrence, it doesn't really work the same way it works in nuclear systems. And that's why this entire enterprise is a house of cards promoted often by, I'm sad to say, Charlotte. Where was this new paper uh, that you published in? It was in the Cyber Defense Review, and this is like a merging ecosystem of uh, new cybersecurity journals. So it, it's a great to see a burgeoning um, academic discourse, because as you know, academia has been a problem for a long time in these spaces. So in this paper, you kind of look at the offense-defense balance um, theory and its application to the cyber domain. Um but before we go into your thesis, talk about offense-defense balance as it's sort of uh, dealt with in the IR literature generally. Yeah, it's been a long, interesting question. And I think every IR scholar, international security scholar, at some point in graduate school is very much captivated by these issues. And um, actually, I started grad school in 1999. And that's when Stephen Van Evers' book came out. And what was interesting about that book is that for the entire 90s, people were waiting for that book to come out to solve the issues of offense, defense. And the reality is that book actually opened up more questions about the nature of the proposition. Now, to go back, the basic proposition is that by examining the constellation of offense, defensive forces, either in or during or after war will determine uh, what side is ascendant. And if the offense has the advantage, then it's more likely that you should want to go on the offense and start a war. Whereas if the defense has the advantage, there will be no war. So this is suggested early on in the 1980s, I think uh, early on in 1979, um, 
I think Jervis was one of the first people to really kind of develop these ideas. But I, out of respect, because he recently passed, and uh, my indeed deep love for Robert Jervis, I left him out of all this stuff because it's just not worth it to bring him into this. He, he didn't cause this problem. He maybe started it, but the way the discourse developed over time, it became for many people the solution for war and peace. And the basic idea for many realists is that, well, the reason why there is war is because um, offense is ascendant. And because offense is ascendant, of course, there's going to be war. And it really removes choice from the equation. It really kind of puts a systemic observation of the constellation of offense defense at the center of war and peace. And we know it's not at the center of war and peace. If that were true, theoretically, Russia would have launched operation against every post-Soviet state they had a disagreement with. But the reality is there's a lot more at stake in the onset of war than the constellation of offense and defensive forces. And that has become a central problem in the community because the basic idea is very simple, but in operation, it really falls apart quickly. So the idea is essentially that there are defense technologies that can be easily distinguished as uh, more having an offensive advantage or more having a, a defensive advantage. And then it's the task of analysts to discover this balance and um, suggest that states make the decision to either go to war or not go to war based on this balance. Um, what are the holes in that theory? Why, why, is that, why has it not been able to be rigorously demonstrated? Well, first of all, the, the main issue is distinction distinguishing between the offense and defense. And that's very hard in conventional war. Is a javelin an offensive or defensive weapon? I think we're staking a lot of claims in this system right now that there are defensive weapons. But if you're going on the offense and you're using small light teams to coordinate in a combined uh, attack against a armored position, you're also going to these types of weapons, these anti-tank weapons that are seen as very defensive. HIMARS, the, the new hero of the Russo-Ukrainian war, is seen as a defensive um, technology because it has a limited range. But on the other hand, this range is 300 miles, and you can use this as an offensive technology to enable quick, rapid offensive attacks. So this issue of distinction has been fundamentally a problem that has destroyed the theory since its beginnings. And it's even worse in cybersecurity. It's fundamentally impossible to distinguish between offense and defense in cybersecurity. And this has particularly been a problem for the U.S. government because we often articulate strategies that are defensive in motivation but because they often operate in opposition network space, as they say, in red space, they can be seen as offensive. So it's really a tough issue to, I've always wanted to do this. I wanted to take the last cyber strategy from 2018 and ask 200, 500 people, uh, international scholars, is this offensive and defensive? And you're not going to get a simple answer. And that's the central problem that if there is no ability to distinguish between the offense and defense, and your theory is called offense-defense balance, how do you distinguish that balance? How do you make that, you know, that teeter-totter? 
and you can't. And even observers admit that this is impossible. And they say, well, you can ballpark it. You can kind of guess. But it doesn't make a lot of sense when you really break it out. And this is really goes to my heart. I was trained as a quantitative social scientist. I was trained as an empirical social scientist. I want to quantify everything. I think everything can be quantified, but not everything can be categorized in the simple yes-no variables. And that's the problem here, that you cannot distinguish yes-no between offense and defense, particularly with technology. This is a huge issue with quantum sensing. This is a huge issue with AI. This is a huge issue with cyber. And this just goes to show that this framework is fundamentally unhelpful, if not destructive to the community. Right. So in the conventional realm, if you can't make the distinction, a clear distinction between offensive and defensive weapons, that really starts to undermine the theory. That um, failure to make clear distinctions also applies in the cyber realm. Um, the other problem with it that you point to in this paper is uh, has to do with perceptions. Why um, do does the cyber tactical route uh, present problems for the theory here? Yeah, it's all fundamentally interconnected, right? If you can't distinguish between the offense and defense, and the fundamental claim of the theory is that if the offense or defense is ascendant, that will tell you when war will happen. If you cannot distinguish between the two, how are you going to make that judgment as to if the offense or defense is ascendant? And really, it's based on this idea of rational perceptions. It's really based on this idea of you taking all the information and evaluating accurately if the offense is ascendant and the discourse. And the problem is, it really depends on who you ask. It really depends, going back to the Graham Allison sense of where do you sit in government? That will determine your answer to these questions. And that's not rational. Um from the perspective of evaluating information through objective information. It's rational from the perspective of bounded rationality and taking limited information, but it's very much subject to motivated reasoning. And it all falls apart from that perspective because you're going to see what you want to see. And if I were to sum up what I've learned about cybersecurity over these last 10 years, I would say people see what they want to see. And that's really frustrating. Hmm. I'm tempted, but I, I think I might refrain from going down a rabbit hole of uh, the role of rationality in international politics. But um, let's do let's do your third point here, which was uh, inaccuracy of measurement. Why why is the cyber domain difficult to measure and therefore fit into this offense defense theory? This is more of a personal thing. It's just that I've been coding data on cybersecurity for a long time, and a lot of people say I'm wrong. You know, I didn't do it right. And, you know, the fundamental response would be like, well, do it better. You know, this, this is, I, I don't have a claim to the data. You can make your own data, but no one else does that. Uh, or very few people do that. What the problem is, is that people say this for years and years. And then when it comes to offense, defense, it's like, oh, oh don't worry about it. We can ballpark it. It's not, you know, Jason Healy says uh, exact measurements may be difficult, but fortunately they are not needed. At the scale and magnitude of the trends should be enough to determine the relative advantage over time between offense and defense. So all of a sudden, exact measurements aren't needed. We can basically ballpark it. Like We can't make policy based on guesswork. And that's what people are doing here. And I think a lot of people are very assured that one thing or the other is working in this space when I, I'm not sure. I don't know how to evaluate 
claims of defense or offense. It, it's it's really tough to unpack in the Russia-Ukrainian war. I even wrote an article about the utility of the defense in this war in deterring Russian attacks. But on the other hand, it could just be that Russia's just really bad at it, or Russia just doesn't have the tools and capabilities to do this stuff. It's basically a variation of the same problem. So all this stuff kind of falls apart, and it's just really disappointing to, pe- to hear people say, basically, you know, you get, you get close enough. This is life and death. This is war and peace. You can't just get close enough. That's, that's not what we do here. That's not responsible for someone to say at an Ivy League institution, but that's what people say. Uh, towards the end of this paper, uh, you write, the misapplied and dangerous conjecture that the best defense is a good offense must end. The best defense is a real defense. Um, talk about what U.S. cyber policies and postures should be, given the insights you point to. Oh, boy, I love this question. It's really thinking about organizing for the international system as it evolves over time. And there's been a fundamental failure in the United States for a long time, and we're fixing that. Um, the DHS, through CISA, has taken a large hand in domestic cybersecurity protections. But there's things we haven't done. Biden has been in his administration almost nearly, you know, it's going to be close to two years now. We don't have a cyber strategy. The last cyber strategy that was developed in 2018 was developed by the Trump administration, and who, in my view, um, whatever you think about Trump and whatever you think about um, the evolution of the Republican Party, uh, it was a disaster for cybersecurity. It, I've written a piece, uh, I've written many pieces on this issue, but it set us back. I, I wouldn't say decades, but it set us back a number of years. And clearing up these issues of authority, of strategy, the basic idea of um what we call our strategy, which is persistent engagement, makes little fundamental empirical sense and is based on this idea of an offense being ascendant. And that goes back to the offense defense. So really it's been troubling to me for this long period of time that we have this fundamental belief that the offense is ascendant in cybersecurity and we're making policy based on that idea. And it might be true. Uh, I don't think it's true. But I think the fundamental issue is that we've never really tried at the defense in a, in a serious way. We have problems with authority. We have problems with organization. We have problems with the workforce. The workforce is fundamentally broken. Um, we have a lot of cybersecurity jobs unfilled. The U.S. government cannot retain serious cybersecurity capacity over time. Uh, we don't work with our allies and partners we talk about this authoritarian internet when the reality is, is like democracies are just as bad at governing the internet as authoritarian states. We haven't done the basics. We haven't set out what critical infrastructure is off limits. And in fact, we've said basically all 16 points of our critical infrastructure is off limits. And we haven't determined really what is the priority, nor as a country have we really decided what are our red lines? And what are we willing to give up in terms of offensive targeting that might stabilize the system? And American strategists will probably tell you we don't give up anything. 
But if you're trying to create normative systems that govern the use of technology and modern warfare, you do have to give some things up. And I'm not sure what we're prepared to give up. I'm not sure what we're prepared to do to stabilize the system, but it's not stable. Um, we've created a lot of bureaucratic structures that are overlapping and often competing. Now, that's really tricky because whenever the kind of structure, the bureaucracy produces certain kinds of policy outcomes, it becomes extremely difficult to unpack that and kind of start at a blank slate. But if there are people interested in policy listening to this uh, and uh, they take your point that uh, it's hard to distinguish uh, cyber offense from cyber defense, and they take your point that this is not a necessarily escalatory domain. Um, is it something that U.S. policymakers should have as a supplemental tactic in any given objective, military objective, or uh, kind of foreign policy objective? Is it something that should be used on the side? It's a it's another uh, tool in the toolkit that can contribute to a certain objective, but not be a strategy in and of itself. Um, is that a, a useful takeaway from, from your work? Yeah, I think you're getting there. I, I view cyber as an enabling technology. And basically the idea would be that you know, cyber is like a computer. It's like Microsoft Word. Does Microsoft Word make you a better writer? Probably not, but it does make things easier. It makes it easier to share. It makes things easier to read. But, you know, we've had Shakespeare's. We've had Hemingway's, of course, without computers. We have G.R. Martin, who's working on like a DOS computer. It, it doesn't matter. Um, it's really about the ingenuity of the strategist. It's really about how you use the tools. But the problem is, is that cyber as a tool is not really useful for the attack. Uh, I'm not even sure it's very useful for the defense, but you should have structures that enable failure that doesn't cascade, that isn't compounding. And that's the problem is that in this system, we often have compounding and cascading failures where one thing leads to another and everything falls apart. But on the other hand, I think there is a utility and complexity, as we say that uh, I think the Texas system is an interesting example of this in terms of energy, right? Where they set up a disconnected energy grid and that can be very consequential when you need a lot of energy power in the middle of December because you have a cold snap all of a sudden. But on the other hand, it also means that if the entire network gets attacked, not everything's gonna fall apart at the same time. And this has been a fundamental problem for the Russians and Ukraine because there's no central power network they can attack. Even we're talking about these power plants, the nuclear power plants and how important they are. Taking these out of the, the system isn't going to fundamentally collapse the entire system. So that's why everything that we think about this domain and its weaknesses has to be couched into a little bit of it's so complex and so interconnected that even our failures aren't going to destroy us. They aren't going to bring us down. But we have to be careful. And a great example is airplanes. Um, it was demonstrated that you can hack an airplane through an, an entertainment system, which just leads to the basic question, could you please not design the entertainment system to interact with the flight system? Is that a problem or a symptom of the offense being ascended? Or is that just a failure of an engineer being lazy? 
you know, and, and that's the issue here. Well, this is very, very, it's always enlightening talking with you because this is uh, not a strength of my own in terms of uh, the depth of my knowledge. But um, Brandon Valeriano, thank you for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me, John.